You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. We are kicking off a new year, and so the first thing we need to do is wrap up a little business from last year. We had a contest that all of you probably have heard at nauseum. You won't hear about it again after this episode. Well, yeah, there's one little thing here, but yeah, that's that's over and done. The people have spoken and they said, we're not really into this contest. <laughs> By spoken, you meant they were silent. <laughs> that, that is a, a kind of speaking, I suppose. Yes, but they voted with I their... I think they communicated effectively that they weren't really into the idea. They weren't. They yeah. weren't. But, you know, you try things and, and then we move on. Right. Um, nothing wrong with trying. Every adult when I was a kid told me that and I ignored them like all kids do. But, uh, yeah, just go ahead and try. What's the worst going to happen? Nothing. <laughs> Right. So we tried it. So we were going to announce that the winner of the $100 Amazon gift card went to Superfan Lee. (laughs) So congratulations, Lee. I think I know what he spent it on, but I don't know specifically. He told me what he was maybe looking at. Uh, It was not. Uh, Dodge Movie Podcast merch because we give that stuff away for free a lot of the time. Right. So speaking of that, we mentioned in, I believe it was the last episode, but if not, it was the episode before that. You had wondered how many podcasts make it to 150 I did, yeah. downloads and or uh, episodes. And so I looked it up and you were correct. Mm. I was mistaken. I mm-hmm. figured... A lot of people would have made 150 at the very least. That is not the case. It was like 10. I put it in the show notes of the last episode. It was 10% make it past 100 episodes. Yeah. So you're right. It is an achievement that Mm -hmm. we've almost been doing this three years and we have 150 episodes under about 151 after today. So I think I can safely say that we are in the podcast upper class. Yeah, <laughs> let's say that. <laughs> so it got me wondering where are our listeners coming from? And we do have some fans in Germany. We have a couple fans in Australia. Hi, Udo. And, and a smattering around, some in the UK. Uh, we have a, a handful in Canada. Hey. So most of our audience comes from the United States. And so I was just kind of curious as I was poking around the little stats, it's kind of fun. Where are the different States that make up the United States of America and where are our fans? So not surprising. Um, the most of our downloads come from the state of Oregon where we live. That's all my friends, right? (laughs) Our friends. Yeah, well, I don't have any friends, so that's fair. <laughs> no, our friends. And because my mom doesn't listen anymore, so we lost family. So it's really just our friends. <laughs> Sorry for that, but yeah, yeah. Uh, no one related really cares. Right. Um, so the next po- most popular place is it says United States Other. And I think that's Alaska and Hawaii. Could it be our Guamanians? It could. Very much. Puerto our Virgin, Ricans? Yes. Right. So we appreciate them. Absolutely. 
And then followed by that Washington, which makes sense because it's a neighboring state. Right. I know some folks who live just across the river. Right. So they, they must listen. So thanks to all you Washingtonians. Texas is our next biggest. Oh, yeah. Everything's bigger in Texas, including our audience. Yes. So So, the superfan is responsible for some of that, I think. Yes. Would that be superfan Ernie? It would be. Yeah. And then Florida's next. And you just found out who that could be, possibly. Yeah, well, there's one listener there, but maybe he's been spreading the word. Right. So then we we do get, I'll I'll be forthcoming, we do get single digits for the following states. California, Louisiana, Montana, Virginia, New York, Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, Missouri, Michigan, Tennessee, Maryland, Georgia. I don't even know why Iowa's on here because it says zero. (laughs) (laughs) I started to read it and I went, wait, why am I? It's like a quarter of a listener, but they round it down. (laughs) Maybe that's it. So we would like to offer, it has been a while since we've asked for reviews. Our last review was received in 2022. And while we know that obviously people are listening from all over, it would really help our podcast to get out there to more, more people. If you could write a review and... Um, let's see, I see them, but I don't know who they go with. So if you write a review and then you, I guess, like do a screenshot or somehow show me that that's connected with you, I will send you a smoochy, smoochy, smoochy sticker. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the merch that you were talking about. I'm going to be honest. I don't know uh, what sort of forensics we're going to do. Um, right. No. <laughs> uh, on this one. So, I mean, if you're willing to burn the calories to, to ask for a sticker, I think we'll, we'll, we'll probably we'll send be okay. you one. Yeah. yeah. They're sitting here on my desk. I would love to share them with people. So thank you for the people who have submitted reviews. We very much appreciate them. We've gotten some very positive reviews. I think we're running at five stars five stars for our podcast so thank you to all of you who made that happen we appreciate it and let's get into our first film of the year our very first film yes drum roll please yes so we we picked it last week it we it's the rose 1979 79 yes so i was eight years old how old were you i was 11 okay do you remember watching it Absolutely not. No, not me either. (laughs) I think my mom knew enough. Like eight years old is not old enough to watch this movie. This movie was hard for us to get. Yeah, this was fascinating to me at how difficult it it was. We have a friend of ours who's a filmmaker who talks about Nolan's, Christopher Nolan's idea of buying things on physical media because you don't want to get screwed by the streaming companies if they decide not to show it anymore. And we found that out firsthand with this one. Mm-hmm. This is a film that people know about. It's considered like, you know, part of the AFI list. It's noteworthy. And we couldn't stream it anywhere. anywhere. We couldn't we've, even buy it digitally. Right. We've gotten really spoiled between Apple and Amazon, who has a pretty big catalog. And so we just thought, oh, yeah, we'll be able to find it there. So we did it the old fashioned way. We rented this film from the library. Yeah, I think they were happy just to see someone come in the doors. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people out there that use the library. So. I, I really hope so. But every time we go to that particular yeah. building, it's like us and the librarians. <laughs> She's like, come in, come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, can I make you a cup of tea? She wouldn't got it for you. You're like, no, I can walk 10 feet to get off the shelf. And she, No, 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 I'll get it. I'll get it. Don't. 
Yeah, I think maybe if we'd asked for a cup of tea, they would have made us one. <laughs> so, uh, so let's see. So 1979's The Rose is directed by Mark Rydell, who also did The Long Goodbye from 1973 and On Golden Pond from 1981. That's 19- why I know his name. 81. I looked up his oeuvre when I, the name sounded familiar and I looked it up and I'm scrolling down. I'm like, no, nah, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Oh, On Golden Pond. Yeah. Uh, what's your trivia for On Golden Pond? <laughs> my dear sweet uncle well into the late so on golden pun it says it's 1981 well <laughs> late into the 1980s would proudly proudly and this is ironic given what we do <laughs> would proudly proclaim i haven't been to a movie since on golden <laughs> like a movie the movie theater right yeah since uh-huh. on golden pun it was the touchstone of his um it's- it's not quite like Chris Carolla telling her son <laughs> that she doesn't have basic cable, even though he's on three channels. Well, to be fair to him, I wasn't, I mean, I loved movies back then, but I, it wasn't my career. So it wasn't like he was stepping on my career, but it was ironic how proud he was. And it wasn't for any reason. Like he did, he liked that movie. <laughs> well, uh, it's all downhill from there. He's like, I'm not going to spoil it. Right, I'm gonna go out on top. <laughs> Uh, okay, nothing against on Golden Pond, but I don't know if that's the pinnacle of, oh, of it's my a good filmmaking movie. Oh, experience. Oh my gosh, I would watch yeah. that one again. I love that movie. We, I mean, it's a movie about daddy issues. I mean, need we go no further? Why I love that right? Movie. I guess we should. Um, we should probably rewatch it again. Certainly, I I haven't seen it, but the oh, ones back in the day, I would happily watch it. And the only thing, only thing I remember from that film is Henry Fonda giving somebody the finger, which um <laughs> which was so scandalous, just scandalous back at the time. Yeah, 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 totally. So I, the reason that Mark Rydell's name sounded familiar to me has nothing to do with poor Mr. Rydell. It's yeah. because it's the name of the high school from Greece. Oh, Rydell High, you're totally <laughs> right. So I is it spelled with a Y? In, in um, Greece, I think so. I think because so. there is when I played football, there's a manufacturer which was I R I D D E L L. No, uh, it, I think it's with a Y. Yeah, the high yeah. school. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe they were big fans of of his work. Right. Who knows? Let's see. I'm getting. We're getting so distracted. <laughs> um, this movie stars Bette Midler as Rose, Alan Bates as Rudge, Frederick Forrest as. Well, it was interesting because in the sh- in the uh, credits, it called him Dyer, or like his name was Dyer in the movie. Right. His name is Houston Dyer, but right. apparently everybody called him by his, except for Rose called him Houston. Very confusing. <laughs> I don't remember very many people calling him Dyer now that I think no, about it. It was mostly just the Houston. trivia. Yeah. Um, on the they always page. refer to him. But uh, in the credits, he is Dyer. That's yes. the weird thing. I couldn't find him for a while. Yes. A, a much younger and a very alive uh, Harry Dean Stanton was in it. <laughs> right. Um, a very young David Keith. So here's the thing about Harry Dean Stanton. He gets pretty high billing and he's in one scene. Yeah. But he is kind of like a pivotal moment. That, or at least uh, a plot yeah. point. Uh, it's definitely yeah. a plot point. I think what it was is he just had star power, and so they had to give yeah. him top billing. Yeah, we'll we'll talk. Well, and poor Doris Roberts, she doesn't even get a character's name other than Rose's mother. mother. And yeah. she's in one scene at the very beginning. Right. I, I mean, it's like one shot. They may have played part parts of it again at the end of the film. Oh, that's true. Um, but yeah, we can talk a little bit about that yeah. scene so too. Let me power through these. Yeah, uh, power. These. Go. <laughs> the DP is Vilmos 
Zygmunt. Zygmunt, all right. And he also did The Long Goodbye, so I bet you the director you know, kind of brought him along on this one's being six years after that film. He also did uh, 77's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. And he was known for his use of natural light and vivid use of color on features. Yeah, I wouldn't say there is a lot of natural light in this film because much of it takes place at a concert or at night. But yeah. Yeah. We've got some filming locations in and around Los Angeles, the Wiltern Theater, um, Veterans Memorial Stadium in Long Beach, and then in New York City, the Plaza Hotel, the Luxor Baths, the NYPD of the Ninth Precinct. So there's some New York and L.A. locations. And the writer of this film is Bill Kirby and Bo Goldman, And Bo did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Flamingo Kid, as well as Dick Tracy. And he passed just this past July at the age Hmm. of 90. Oh, well. Yeah. So, but thank you for your oeuvre, Bo Goldman. Right. Quite a bit of range there. (laughs) The synopsis for this film is... The tragic life of a self-destructive female rock star who struggles to deal with the consistent pressures of her career and the demands of her ruthless business manager. And the tagline is, she gave and gave and gave until she had nothing left to give. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, doesn't, I I don't think it describes the film or makes me want to go see it. So (laughs) I think I could do a little better. Right. So a little bit of trivia, it's, it's a, it's somewhat controversial whether this, although I think it's readily um, recognized that they really wanted to make the movie of um, Janice Joplin's life. And they, it was titled Pearl, mm-hmm. but Janice's family did not give them permission. And so they um, switched it to Rose. Interestingly, one of the drag queens performs as Pearl Hart, a Janis Joplin impersonator. And I'm pretty sure that was the uh, drag queen that was performing as the Rose, basically. uh Uh-huh. The DVD sleeve has a trivia item that reads, Bette Midler's fictional role bears striking similarities to Janis Joplin, who many say was the film's inspiration. Like Joplin, Midler's character performs while drinking Southern Comfort. She is called Rose, as Joplin was called Pearl, and she returns home to flaunt her success just as Joplin showed up at her high school reunion. Yeah, I I, I, I think the, 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 the similarities are pretty striking there i would i would accept that as this film is a pastiche of janice joplin's life yeah one little bit of trivia is Bette miller was actually up for some parts in rocky and nashville which is apollo creed robert right yeah well i mean i don't think she was playing apollo creed oh, okay but um, i think that had been a fun film robert altman's film nashville and then foul play but she turned down all of those roles in order to play the lead in this one which actually made her an instant screen icon as far as an actress i would like to say r- regarding casting i don't think this film can work unless the lead is really good at a singer. Now I think you can make movies about singers with somebody who's good, but not like great. I don't think this film 
could survive without somebody of a Bette Midler level. I just don't think it works well if the concert footage when she's singing, if you're like, oh, oh, um, I mean, it has to, it has to be somebody really good. Yep. I totally agree with you. Why don't you kick us off with your pickup line? And then I'm going to talk about the opening scene because it's pretty powerful. Rose says, I got something I want to sing to you. Tracks pretty well. Yeah, it it opens up with concert footage and her voiceover. It's a dark. It's just a black screen and surely out of breath. It's like she's struggling because she probably just did like a big, yeah, big number. Yeah. And so she's just struggling and she seems a bit down. I wonder if it's mirroring its bookending the ending. Yeah. It, I, it, I read it as basically a, a, a flash forward. It, right. It's the end of the film, but. And so it's that, but then people walk into a garage. It's, um, it's Doris Roberts and it's probably her father. I think maybe. A yeah. There's brother. a guy credited as Doris's father or the Rose's father. Right. So. And so they all walk into this garage with these photos around one of her as a little girl and, and some like newspaper clippings. And it looks very kind of almost creepy. It looks like a serial killer. <laughs> There's red yarn. Yeah. <laughs> And then we cut to the airport with the band and backup slingers coming off the plane. Then she appears. She's the last one. She's clearly hung over or stoned. She, um, you know, kind of moving forward, just talking about the costuming in the scene. She's wearing like this red, a lot of red on like a dress and then a, a, a coat or something. And then she's got purple shoes on and those colors are opposite or no, they're adjacent. Kind of on, on the, the color wheel. Yeah. She stumbles down the stairs, a, do- a bottle drop, or she drops a bottle, it breaks, and a guy smiles and kind of helps her to the limo, and then we cut to concert footage. And it was interesting because the she was wearing almost like a blush-colored tank top, mm-hmm. and it made her look topless. Yeah. And there were several of the concert scenes she wasn't wearing a whole lot up top mm-hmm. uh, there is a, a bit of her womanly figure was kind mm-hmm. of displayed which i i think probably for the 70s was yes. an accurate depiction yes barefoot you know right yeah and one of the things that you mentioned there with a, a later scene when they refer to her as a hippie is this line's a little bit different for us now, right? Because it's not the thing. We were surprised that there was so much anti-hippie hatred. But back then, that was, in some sense, a political statement, right? A tribal affiliation, the way a person was dressed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's can, that factor as well. Yeah, we'll bring that up later. Oops, sorry, stepped no, on No, 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 it's okay. Um, so you, I wanted to get to your cinematography because you wanted to talk about that. And I, I, very much the film, a large portion of the film feels like a concert movie. Yeah, uh, that was one of my biggest notes was how did they film this thing? Because there were so many concerts. Now... The first couple of concerts, I feel like they filmed in the same venue at the same night. They just edited it a little differently. I would agree. Um, but there were other parts, like the ones where like she performs at like Veterans Memorial Stadium and some different things where it is obvious that they have gone to a different location. But filming that, this was the era of literal film. And the lighting is low and not particularly set up for cinematography. You're using really long lenses because you can't be right up next to the stage with your film crew. 
how do you not get people in the shot watching keeping that all in focus like how do you expose for that and still have a decent depth of field that was incredibly challenging i think to get that concert footage and i don't think it looks as pretty as some things that are you know oh well that's an award-winning kind of right but but that was amazing that they got all of that concert footage yeah but i almost feel like it 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 lent to the grittiness of her life of being a rock and roll band of things weren't polished like we just mentioned like she wasn't done up like if you go to a beyonce concert or a kelly (laughs) clarkson they're like done up like the outfits it looked like she pulled something off the floor and threw it on kind of and like we said didn't really do hair and makeup like it wasn't right i remember our really good friend even though we haven't talked to her in a while annie bell talked about for an award ceremony she spent hours and hours in the hotel suite before doing hair and makeup right and so you would think like you said for like if beyonce is going on stage it's a couple hours of hair and makeup to look fantastic and this was like you said they kind of just almost dragged her out of the limo <laughs> right. propped her up in front of the mic and said sing right so the movie kind of kicks off pretty early, I would say, almost, uh, I mean, you tell me if it's the inciting incident, but she's in talking to her manager and she's saying, I'm tired. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I want to take a break. I'd love to take a year off. Like, right. Because he's talking, I think, even about when this, when this tour is finished, we're going to go back into the, the recording yeah. studio. So I thought that was really great shot selection. Because, uh, and so this is partly sets, but also partly cinematography. They're having this argument and the window behind them shows you Central Park. Yeah. So as a viewer, I'm now thinking you're at a penthouse overlooking Central Park and you're whining, right? I mean, it sets up that kind of like that she's got all the things that people Mm -hmm. would think I'm going to work hard for. And Mm -hmm. she's like, but now I want to. Own a break. uh, Yeah. I would like to enjoy yeah. Right. And well, she even says that I've worked really hard. I want to enjoy my life. Right. I'll come back. I'll do a record, but I just, right. I need a year off. Right. And so I'm thinking if I was in that room, I'd be standing, staring out, looking at Central Park for a while. But to her, it's kind of, this is like, she can't even enjoy the view. Mm-hmm. Right. She's just looking in away mm-hmm. from Central Park to argue with her dopey manager type, which I think is is probably fairly accurate, but it just maybe credit to the actor, but I hated that character. I wanted her to push him out the window. Yeah, I was torn. I wrote down in my notes, like, is he ruthless? Cause I read the synopsis and I was like, is he ruthless or is he just a businessman who has been hired to further her career? And this is part of what they do. They do a tour, then they write an album, then they release the album and then they do a tour. So in that scene, I felt like he was in a way just doing his job. Now, a later scene, he's definitely not a nice gentleman. But in that scene, I was like, but is he ruthless or he, because she kind of does seem a little flaky. And so I I almost had a tiny bit of compassion for him. Like, oh, it must be annoying to have to deal with these like coked out rock oh, stars. Yeah, maybe so, but he should work for her. So no, he, he was a, um, a jerk from the start. That was obvious to me because if he was working for her and she says, I want to take a break, he's like, okay, right. Then 
we'll take a break. I'll tell him we'll put the album out next year. You'll, you know, I'll tell him you're writing songs and we'll be fine. So another thing is ever since making a movie in an elevator, I'm very sensitive to these kind of things. And there's a, a, an extended scene of her in a phone booth. And how did they shoot that? There were no GoPros in 1979. Oh, I very much felt like we were, the audience was always outside the phone booth. Yeah, I think they just took the windows out from the different sides. Oh, so, yeah, so you don't remember. But, like, with the the side with the doors, they have a hinge. Mm -hmm. It would be in the way. So, they just, you know, they disassemble it a bit, right? Makes sense. Right. I just, I I never thought we were, well, there was a scene where they kind of did a close-up of that little shelf that was always in phone booths that she put the money and the drugs and... And the stack of unidentified cards. (laughs) Like they, they were too big for index. baseball cards, but that maybe would were have they made index sense. Cards? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the bottle of there was a bottle of booze on that little shelf. Right, she had room for a lot of stuff. She did. Um, she had the big bag. Okay, so this is unfortunately dating ourselves. Some of our listeners may not actually be acquainted with phone booths because they did disappear at a certain point. Like, of course, iPhones put them out of business. Pretty, pretty. But there used to be a little shelf in there, mm-hmm. right? And you could array things mm-hmm. you know to, to write or something it, it was like a cute little thing and that's why well the british version for doctor who but bill and ted they use a phone booth they were like little miniature rooms and they had like a little table <laughs> and so uh, from cinematography my my last thing that i really wanted to talk about which is i thought very interesting is the interior shots when they're on the plane the whole band is going and if you notice, the camera moves gently. So imagine like if you were in a boat, right? So it's not shaky handheld. It was very deliberate, but there was a movement to it that I th- very, very subtle, which to credit to the, the camera department, I'm pretty sure they did it on sticks and they just practiced and got this real slow kind of side to side or bobbing motion. They gave a sense that they were in the plane, but it was super subtle. I'm guessing many people didn't notice it. Uh, but for those of us who are super sensitive to the shaky handheld, it was a very nice touch. That's fascinating. I didn't even notice it. Yeah, yeah. So we had themes of drug use and drinking and defiance. She was being told not to say, not to use foul language. And then the first thing she does when she goes out on the right. stage. <laughs> is addresses the audience with one of like the the most offensive of uh, seven words you can't say on television yeah. there were lots of groupies hanging out with the band so there was you know those kind of things that we have come to associate with rock rock stars i thought it was funny when she kind of connects with houston she goes on and on and on and she's saying like the rose you know, doesn't like to do this and the rose will do. And he goes, anyone who talks about themselves in the third person is Looney Tunes. Yes. He doesn't seem to be impressed by her fame or intimidated by it. He's just like, get over yourself. Uh, He's her driver. He is. Yeah. I guess he's not her driver. He was somebody else's driver and she jumped in and kind of. Right. Absconded with their limo. Yeah. He threw, she threw some cash at him and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll give up on this job. Well, you know, that's enough cash. But then they end up together, together. So this is why I think that um, one, uh, I think I'm going to make an argument for the Billy Ray scene who is portrayed by uh, Richard Dean Stanton. 
No. Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> Richard Dean Anderson was MacGyver. So <laughs> I'm getting my 80s people mixed yeah. up. Is Billy Ray comes in and he disapproves of her singing his songs and her vulgarity. And he basically says, do not sing my songs anymore. So I, I feel like he's supposed to be kind of like in the day, like a George Jones Right. Maybe a Willie Nelson of the time, but maybe not. He's like. So my question is. Who's the guy who Dolly Parton was. He had a show and she was on his show and that's who she wrote. I will always love you for. Got Porter nothing. Wagner. Oh, that's a that's a country name. Yeah, from back I think in the day. I think kind of that's who Harry Dean Stanton's supposed to be. So it's curious. I, I don't know to what degree the person who wrote a song can say you can't record it. They could ask, but I think as long as you credit them, you can record any song you want. Um, you have to pay them the songwriting fee, right? Right. And credit them. But other than that, I don't think you have a choice. But maybe as a musician, it's considered extremely poor form to go against somebody's direct orders. I don't know. I think he was clearly supposed to be someone of a status and... For you to go ahead and record a song without his blessing probably would get you maybe not blacklisted, but kind of like people would look down on you because they're like, so I, I think it was, you would want their blessing right? But she back in the day. also had oppositional defiant disorder. So. Yes. So that just made yeah. it worse. So it's interesting because she tells Houston about this story about when she was in high school and it was a super sad story. Especially, I guess, with, you know, modern eyes, she she kind of brags, but I feel like it's a test. She says that basically she got with the whole oh the whole football, football team. team and it was right. kind of like, was it like a gang rape or was it she was just expressing her sexuality or, you know, I mean, I uh, it landed to it me did, as she made that up to test him. I don't no, think but, she really did it. No, she did, though, because remember at the end in the bar, that guy goes, I was there that night. Remember right before she goes to the concert, she ends up Mm. at a bar and she goes in and one of the guys says, remember that night when you were on the football field? I was one of I was there. I was one of the guys. Right. I'm just telling you how it landed to me. Okay. So I think it happened, but I felt like what she was doing is she liked Houston and she was like, I bet you're going to, so I'm going to tell you this story that is really, you know, offensive and probably unattractive. Yeah. It's a test. And so I'm going to see, and he kind of still hung out with her. He was like, all right, whatever. Like he didn't really Mm -hmm. care because she mentions it later. She says he liked me, even though I told him about the football team. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that definitely was her. I asked, is Rudge, her manager, frustrated by her behavior? He expresses concern, his concern to Houston. At the after party, he is trying to get her to glad hand the supporters. And he fires her as a client and tells her that the concert's off. But he was, that was a test for her as well. I wondered, is he, are Houston and Rose really in love or is she just looking at, for an escape route and, an, and a distraction to kind of leave the life. Yeah, that's, I think, definitely part of it. I think the character of Houston is supposed to represent what she left behind. He's like a, a small town boy, right? 
He also, because he's he admits that he's AWOL from the army, mm-hmm. and she wants to go AWOL from this mm-hmm. thing that she was kind of drafted into. So I, to me, that's what his character is supposed to represent, mm-hmm. right? And then what is the vehicle for David Keith's character? He's the the military kid that's in one of the bars I think they go in. Yeah, that character confused the heck out of me. I, I don't really know, like, not not just like from a narrative standpoint, but just like in the story, wh- what he was doing there, how he showed up, why he was there. I was very, very confused. And then he's wandering around in his Class A uniform the whole time, which is, again, kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand that character so much. So Mark Rydell would only agree to direct this film if Bette Midler was cast in the lead. And she had wholly been in bit parts and was primarily known as a nightclub singer. So this was huge for the director to kind of go to bat for her because, and like we said, it kind of propelled her career to be in many other films. I mean, she went on to do like big business. What's the one about the friends that I love? Um, Beaches? Yeah, Beaches. (laughs) Ruthless People? Yeah. I mean, she was in a lot of films after this one. This one definitely kicked off her Mm -hmm. film career. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a television show that come acting choices. I felt like I felt like I could see almost some Bette Midler style bleeding through some of her performances. I don't think Bette drinks on stage. She probably I think she's a little bit more controlled in her movement. I've actually seen her and she's a little bit more controlled in her movements. But she's not like I feel like Janice is kind of like all over the place and very loosey goosey mm. kind of with her movements but there was parts where she would talk to the audience and it was like oh that feels more like that's a bet thing mm-hmm. than you know a rose thing one so just the historical context and the uh, the cultural significance of this film i was shocked they go into a diner and people are like angry like most of the people are just kind of leave get out like I have no problem being rude to her and Houston and the the chef even comes out and says we don't serve hippies here it's just like oh my gosh and I do remember some of my family members talking about hippies in a very derogatory way like they were annoyed by them they were dirty they were you know they didn't work they as you describe them it sounds like the homeless right mm-hmm. and maybe they kind of were it's right? possible that people maybe viewed them in like well certainly in the 50s um into the 60s i think being unemployed being a bum mm-hmm. that was a very bad thing it was considered a sign of a character defect mm-hmm. right so that was part of it. There was drug use. It was counterculture. They were, you know, going against the status quo. And I do think that that's still a generation of people that grew up in the shadow of World War II. Mm-hmm. So they were r- really anxious, right? Don't mess with the, like that, the guy with the bad haircut and the weird mustache mm-hmm. really almost tipped over the apple cart. So don't rock the boat. Mm-hmm. That was, and I think that was why they really didn't like the hippies. They saw them as um, a threat. And then a lot of people in that movement were vocal proponents of communism, mm-hmm. which was also a, a giant threat at the time. So mm-hmm. 
But yeah, you and I were both surprised at, at kind of the negative reaction because for us growing up as kids, it was more like flower power. You'd see him, you know, on television, like the mystery machine on Scooby-Doo. So we had a different perspective than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, it was, it was so aggressive and outwardly. It wasn't even like yeah, hostile. Yeah, very hostile. One patron says, get lost, bimbo. So they were just, and there were two young girls. I thought it was there. There were, oh no, it was a convenience store she went in and the two young girls recognized her. So I would think someone of her stature, people would have kind of known, but they were just so annoyed at her appearance. Yeah, that's kind of, that was one of the things both in the, store where she's like when she went back home she's like don't you know who i am but Mm -hmm. also in the the diner she's a big name i think people would have somebody would recognize her not maybe everybody but somebody would say oh look it's the rose right so speaking of kind of her appearance now we can talk about one of the things that kind of caught your eye You mean the fact that she did not shave her armpits? No. And it wasn't just a little bit. It wasn't just like a week or two. Yeah, no, this was... um, Good months of growth. Yeah, I was going to say she committed for quite some time. I I don't know the rate of armpit hair growth, but that looked to be at least a year to my eye. Yeah. And yeah, and so I had the question um, that I looked up. I I do occasionally do research. Very rarely, but I do. When did that become a thing? And the answer was between the wars that... uh, Gillette apparently was, uh, they tapped out the market on gentlemen's razors and decided they should convince women to shave their armpits and then their legs so they could sell more razors. And I am sorry to the ladies, curse those Gillette people. It's all a scam, ladies. It really is. And then they charge her twice as much because they make it pink. Right. Are you kidding me? Right. All right. So um, I loved like kind of some of her flowy gowns and tops. I liked all the concert venues backstage. It very much felt um, she felt very at home um, at the drag club. Right. I thought um, the the band was probably realistically dressed for a late 70s band. Mm -hmm. But would someone find the bass player a shirt? (laughs) Homie was topless the whole time. (laughs) It got hot. Up there. Oh, now that I think about it, if he had a lady bass player who's topless, he would have sold millions of albums. Right. Um, yeah. Can you explain to me why her loser manager, Rudge, was an English guy, but he dressed like Mac Davis? <laughs> it was 1979. I guess that was it. <laughs> That's it. So when she performed When a Man Loves a Woman, and I have a Greatest Hits album of Bets, and that song, I'm almost positive it's even that recording because of the cadence and different right. things. Um, it just sounded so familiar. So I wondered, it was was that a thing that Bet brought with her? Like, did mm-hmm. she sing that or did she sing it after this? Mm-hmm. Uh, the soundtrack was performed by Bet, and The Rose was one of the biggest selling vinyl singles of 1980. The choreography was done by Tony Basil of O'Mickey fame. Mm, Tony Basil, of course. <laughs> this film is recognized by the American Film Institute as um, it's number 83. So was there any head trauma um, in so this film? Houston punches a guy in the diner. I wasn't exactly clear on all the places he punched him, but I think he punched him in the head once at least. 
This is a different kind of head trauma, but Rose punches Houston in the nuts after he <laughs> slaps her. And Don't I get, slap a lady. I, I think he slapped her when he found her in the bathroom with Sarah. Yes. And then um, in the honky-tonk bar, Houston punches a guy in the face. So he's a violent fellow. Yeah. Yeah, not cool. All right. There was some smooching before there was the punching. Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. Yeah, yeah, it was a mixed bag. So Rose and Houston smooch in the hotel room after their first boom chicka wow wow. Kiss again in the dressing room after a concert. And then Rose and the aforementioned Sarah kiss in the dressing room after the concert. Which for 1979, two women kissing on screen was probably considered pretty racy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Waka waka. All right. How about a driving review? Well, there's a lot of vehicles in this film. So I'm actually going to start a little bit in the air. So they have a Viscount um, from Vickers, the 798D, which is their aircraft. These are uh, fairly large aircraft, which should show that they're doing very well financially. However, there is a bit of a mystery here because... At one point, she takes a helicopter. I think it's when she goes to see Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. And like um, all civilian aircraft, it has what's called an N number. N is uh, what is used in the United States, which is like a license plate number. You can look that up on the internet. The FAA makes this available. It's public information. That's a 1982 helicopter. This film was made in 1979. How could that be? So I don't know if they reassigned the N number or somebody mistyped something, but that's a bit of a mystery. Yeah. But even then, it's set in 1969. This aircraft was not produced until 10 years later. But I don't think many nerds. Very few people <laughs> are going to know that. Okay, so there's a lot of a Lincoln Continental Executive Limousine in this. There's actually two of them. And one of them is less damaged than the other. In particular... There's a 69 and a 67. The 67 is the one that we see throughout the most of the rest of the film. And we know it because it has continental and letters across the hood, the front of the hood. And the first eye is missing. And I noticed that that was odd. Continental was a high-end car. If you were a limo service, I don't think that would be the case. But if you pay attention near the end of the film, Houston drives through a barricade at, a, at one of the concert venues and I think they shot out of order. I think they drove through the barricade and it knocked the eye off. And then the director said, if anybody notices that the eye is missing, we've already lost them. Enter Mike. Enter Mike. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. But um, the eye is missing. So I, I, what can I say? I noticed it. There's a really sweet blue 59 Ford pickup. At one point, Rose has 69 Cadillac Fleetwood that she borrows, steals, uses. And I have to say that I really did like this bit. Again, this is very few people are going to, but she's trying to drive this thing fast and she oversteers at the apex because it's very common for the layperson to go into a corner too hot and halfway through they stab the brakes and panic. Weight transfers to the front wheels. The ass end comes around, especially on a rear wheel drive heavy car like a Cadillac Fleetwood. Perfectly executed amateur driver so they had a very qualified stunt driver who did the worst thing but that's okay it's there and then at one point in one of these cadillacs they have a phone like a cell phone except i don't know when 
cell phones and cars happened, but I'm pretty damn sure that they didn't have the same headset handset that Ma Bell gave you in your in your room to talk to your friends for Team Beat. It was like though the original mobile phones and cars were a different physical construction, and this looked like someone literally just took a phone out of the hotel room and propped it on the doghouse in the car and said, "There's your there's your phone." Well, but this was about the same time. Remember Arthur? Was it Arthur or was it Trading Places they had a phone mm-hmm. in the limo? Yes, it was Trading Places they had a phone and, and I think they even had like a fax machine too. Well, um, I know they had the readout, like the the ask no, what they call it? ASCII or it yeah, was the green the green screen CRT. Yeah. Um, and this is supposed to be 1969, so I didn't do the research on this. Sorry, on listeners. <laughs> it just it was like, wow, this is so anachronistic. But again, I think the right director probably yelled at that person and said, if they notice the phone, we've lost. So. <laughs> All right. So we go to the numbers. Let's go to the numbers. Okay. So the original, before I get into that, the original home video release was separated into two parts because back then VHS could only hold two hours of videotape at a time. And so an alternative would have to have been edited for the movie because it was two hours, 15 minutes. That was, uh, if I recall correctly, SP for slow play. That's right. That's right. I remember that. Oh my gosh. The film opened in New York City on Wednesday, November 7th, 1979, and it grossed $793,000 its opening weekend from 44 screens and the second highest grossing opening weekend under 50 screens Oh, it was the second highest grossing opening weekend under 50 screens behind Star Wars in 1977. And the film went on to gross $29.2 million in the United States and Canada. It had a budget of $8.5 million. It gets a 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb. And apparently critics have not rated it because it was not available on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) So uh, it is rated R. It is a 20th Century Fox film and it is labeled drama, music, romance. Adjusted for today, the gross would have been like 122 million. So pretty successful. Yeah, pretty successful. Yeah. Uh, it, won, it won five awards and got 12 uh, nominations. Among them was an Oscar nomination for Bet and Frederick Forrest, his only, I believe, uh, award. Um, oh, no, he won for supporting. He won a Golden Globe for supporting. It won Best Sound and Best Film Editing. And Bet also won a Golden Globe for Best Actress that year. And the song, Amanda McBroom, who wrote the song The Rose, won for Best Original Song. Mm. I love that song. It's so sad. <laughs> I just love I it. I love it. It's so sad. It is. It's just, it's one of those, if you need to be sad, you just put on the rose, but it's so beautiful. That phrase makes no sense. You need to be sad. <laughs> it does to all the females out there. <laughs> right, girls? <laughs> I, well, okay. Uh, no, if you're already feeling sad and you just want to kind of sit in it for a minute just so that you can process it and get through it, you put on this song. So... When you get hit in the nuts, you don't sit there and try to wallow in it. You try to get to where you don't feel so bad anymore. Somebody who has trouble expressing his emotions, (laughs) instead of taking a streaking. (laughs) When he can't use his feeling words, he goes to the rose. (laughs) 
I'm telling you, it works. Yeah. <laughs> Don't knock it till you uh, tried it. Right. <laughs> well, have you streaked? Um, that might be an alternative. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I start running through the house naked because <laughs> um, I'm not leaving the house. I'll tell you that much. Alrighty. So let's figure out what we're watching next week. Now we need to pick for uh, what we're going to watch next week. So stay tuned. Let's see. We are going to be talking about the film Spinal Tap. Oh, this is Spinal Tap. <laughs> None more black. <laughs> You've got to be so excited to watch that movie. Oh, very, very much so. I can't wait to hear what it's you're... It's of an era, but it's a great one. This is Spinal Tap. <laughs> we have some fun trivia for you. So we will see you next week, but never forget... Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.